Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene, and tonight, my co-host Simon and I will be continuing our two-part discussion on the classic Ridley Scott film, Blade Runner. The four-year lifespan. I think I'm getting this, pretty sure I'm getting this from the watch, the, the, the main version, that they, that Tyrell says basically they start to develop some emotional instability. And so they built in a four-year lifespan. But would I be right in interpreting that as a, uh, not marketing speak, but uh, double speak, for they develop a conscience. They develop actual morality because that seems to be sort of what's happening with them i mean yes they are on a quite a murderous spree and that's not good but roy knows i've done things of questionable morality he knows he feels the loss he feels the regret of his of his friends he has the wherewithal to be questioning whether Deckard is a good man, right? I mean, Deckard is yes. Deckard is doing basically the same job he did at a different level. We don't know what they were fighting against, whether it's other colonists or space aliens. You know, we don't know. But they were military troops. That's your job is to go kill people. Deckard's job is to go kill people. And supposedly the military is good, right? Supposedly the police are good in the execution of their job. Um, except, except, you know, but you know, he, he yeah, can question we, that. We, yes, yes. So, which which, which we, is part of you know that's part of setting it in the in the in a film noir that you you can establish certain things about you know there being uh, morally grey areas in the way that people behave and do they become your, useless. Your character? Well, no, I'm I'm I mean I mean the the police are not necessarily good and. You're, in fact, no one is wholly good, and the best that you can hope for is questioning these things. And from, and I I mean, I entirely agree with you because, from a marketing perspective, so what Tyrell is selling these things for is to do a job, right, and a specific job. So that they, compliance is basic functionality, and as soon as they start questioning things they're going to start becoming non-compliant because they're not simply obeying orders but then that is clearly parallel to going on elsewhere in the sense that Deckard is is rather than behaving like a good loyal and obedient Blade Runner he is starting to question things so Mm -hmm. you 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 start you start off you start off by establishing this idea that you 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 create these these replicants for a 
for very specific purposes where they are they are uh, bought and sold and they are owned they're, they're manufactured and created with a finite lifespan or at least in this case um, in order to do some job in order to be uh, a servant or work in a mine or whatever it is they're doing some job and then you explore the fact that they are empathetic to a degree where and and self-conscious to a degree where they are starting to, to ask questions ask moral questions and question their own actions and other people's actions and so forth but of course if you recognize that then you have to recognize the situations that we are all in where we are put in positions where we are there to do a job essentially being bought and sold and and so on and what we are all doing is developing a conscience and that when um, when you get to the point of there being a sort of sufficient level of um, how should we put it insurrection mm. then people's lifespans start to be shortened <laughs> um do the replicants know they'll fail the Voight comp test i assume I mean, the they, ones that I know assume, replicants, I assume most... these ones do i mean the, the nexus six replicants do um Obviously, i mean rachel so Ra- Ra- that's rachel, different well no but rachel knows that yeah. rachel knows that replicants would fail voight voight camp test i right. think the the replicants, but she works at tyrell corp so she works at tyrell corp so she knows all about that i would i would imagine there are replicants out there or out on the the outer worlds who don't even know what a voight camp test is i would imagine the the nexus six is because of the situation they're in, they know they're being hunted. They know, presumably, some of the ways in which they will be tested by those hunters. They might be, they might be aware that they would fail those tests. I mean, it, I, I say that not, not because they have insuff- insufficient knowledge about those tests. I'm presuming they do have sufficient knowledge about the, those tests. But it's, 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 it simply comes much more down to a question of your own self-belief because we're not talking about perfectly rational machines here. If they, if they have empathy and they have emotions like humans do, they presumably also suffer from some of our failings, such as over-self-confidence. And you may think, oh yeah, well, I will be able to pass a Voigtkamp test because I'm brilliant. Okay. What is the advantage this is another of those universe questions what is the advantage of building a replicant with false memories like rachel and 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 what does she have a four-year lifespan what yes she does she does well no well <laughs> they don't say they don't say <laughs> that okay. in this film. they specifically don't say it they okay in the theatrical release she there there's i think you'd acknowledge there's a heavy implication that she does right because yes. she she's a ne- she's a next generation. The the Nexus Six have been the kind of most advanced ones. They have a four year limited lifespan. Rachel being a next generation version, maybe she has a slightly longer lifespan, but it's still going to be essentially severely limited. You also have that l- that l- final line from Gaff. Oh, I'm gonna get the exact. Yeah, how long do any of us have? Something like that. But then how long? Yeah, do- or- she won't live. But yeah, something like that. It's yeah, too. It's too bad she don't last. It's too bad she don't last. But who does? 
the who does. That's life. right. Is the life. So the who the who does is slightly ambiguous. In the theatrical version, the added in voiceover says something daft like, um, but it turned out that she didn't. So that was all jolly good. And I really? don't think that I, yes, yes, really. See, now that's not in the, uh, that's not in the deleted stuff, which has all the narration in the other. But anyway, okay. So it's in, no, it is, but, it's, it's there in the narration over the, the deleted happy ending bit. Um, but and and then there's the question of what you discover from the sequel, which I shan't say don't, anything about. Don't go there yet. Um, but but I I I think there is I think there is definitely a strong hint that she does have the limited lifespan. It's uh, fair. I I think the question is why I ask the question is again we don't know if Tyrell's lying, but after four years because they don't have the emotional framework. They begin developing their own emotions and they become unstable, which is his word for, you know, marketing speak for they get a conscience and they rebel against their oppressors. Yeah. But they're trying to defeat that by giving them a lifetime of memories and framework. So would they then break down in the same way if they went on through their life and never knew that they were a replicant? And... If that were true, then would you give it an, a shortened lifespan, or would you just not necessarily and make that, your that prototype that, without one? That, well, that's the ambiguity, isn't it? I mean, they're aiming they're aiming for something. They don't know whether they have achieved it. Do you take the risk of removing the the limited lifespan? They have Blade Runners. They could just shoot her down. <laughs> I, but again, what is the purpose of doing that? I mean, yes, okay, is, keep, is it to keep them subservient slaves longer because they don't go well, unstable, because they've got a stable life, or is there something else to it? I, well, that's one and, obvious thing. I, I think, I think there, there are innumerable potential uses. I mean, it's one of those things where you think you, you'd be doing that research and development anyway because the, there, are, there are all sorts of possibilities. If you, because you could, goodness me, you could have... Kind of, there are there are applications in in all all sorts of industries and also in espionage. You, I mean, you could have sleeper agents. You you could do almost anything with someone who didn't know that they were a replicant. Particularly, Assuming you know, with assuming that you could change their programming midstream. Well, not necessarily midstream, but certainly if you had some sort of subconscious level of of, of guidance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, but it, but to me, it, it, it seems like it's, it's like, it's Silicon Valley startups doing technological research and development on things that have no applications at the time when they're doing the R and D, but they're doing it because they can and because it's unquestionable that those applications will come along. Now, whether they come along in the right way at the right time for them to actually monetize them that's you know that's what determines whether the company sinks or swims but certainly if they if they don't do that they will get left behind by the companies that do so i i i, I don't it, it didn't raise any kind of question mark for me that they would be exploring those things and just seeing where the possibilities are seeing what the effects are seeing if it solves their immediate problems yes to do with lifespan and so forth 
but also maybe see what else. Well, you know, one of the themes that we come back to in with the, the regular Nexus 6 replicants is those photographs, their memories. Right? So by giving them an artificial set of memories, maybe that's a, a way to, you know, to pacify that whole thing. But I, mm. I, I want to add, I want to add that, you know, part of the reason that I told you because it's very evocative for me and it's very visual for me and it's difficult for me to convey. But the only reason I want to tell the story about the, the, the dump and the, the dogs thing is because all of those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. I mean, I mean it's no different for us than it is yeah. <laughs> for them. <laughs> it's like, I've seen things. I've seen garbage dumps at sunrise. And okay, that might not be as exciting as attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion, but still, you know. Uh, um, Roy's little speech at the end, I understand that that was substantially longer at one point, and Rutger Hauer injected that tears in rain cut-down version because he thought it was a little more poetic. Um, also, the dove was his idea, which I, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I... You know, when you have a film that has such a notoriously taskmaster, uh, perfectionist of a director like Ridley Scott, you know, even though, you know, there's a script, Ridley Scott is telling him to rewrite the script. I mean, this is Ridley Scott's vision, or at least that's the idea, right? They, they yeah. producers paid for a Ridley Scott film, and we're trying to get a Ridley Scott film here. And to have those two things, which are so iconic in this film, be what sounds like pulled out of the butt ideas from an actor who's just kind of <laughs> into his role, right? I mean, it, it really no, kind no. of, it really does kind of call into question that whole, <laughs> the grand master plan of this film. I think it's like, oh yeah, that was just, uh, yeah, the thing we decided to do there at the end while we were afternoon. <laughs> just, I, 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 I'm not sure I buy that. So, I mean, you want to criticize the performance of Sean Young? Well, okay, maybe I, I might have a bit of a pop at Harrison Ford. I think could have had someone a bit less wooden in that role. Oh yeah, he Rutger Hauer's the force in this. Rutger Hauer is just amazing. In Agreed. He he's weird. He's, he's dangerous. Superb. Yes. He he's he's yes. really nails it. I'm not I'm not and I So and I, I don't think you I don't think you the... get that kind of performance out of an actor without doing a huge amount of work with them. So I and and I think if if some of the ideas, I mean I didn't know that that um that any of that speech or or how you know how it was shaped came from him but if, if that was the case it well i'm not i'm not i'm not disputing them i just think that, 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 that there's an element of collaboration there the fact that the fact that it's come about through the work that ridley scott has done with rutger howard does not mean that it is not part of ridley scott's vision he makes the ultimate decision anyway so if he didn't like it he could have said so he had he had the the say to do that yeah no i'm i i i think it i think it's too easy to see the director because because directors are lionized in this way and there's there's one uh, 
screenwriter I, in particular I can think of is always, always complaining about the fact that at the beginning of the film you get like a Ridley Scott film. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> did Ridley Scott write the script? Well, no, he didn't. It's not just a Ridley Scott film. It's a lots of people film. Ridley Scott I, did one of the jobs on it. I believe that 90% films and TV out there, the 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 success of it is the writer. And this is one of the reasons why I kind of pick a lot at plot holes because it, that is the, the story is is to me the most important. I think a great a great director can raise up a script and I think a lousy director can destroy a good script. Right? That's there's a but I don't think that a it's very rare that a great director can raise a poor script. And I'm going to say Ridley Scott's probably one of those that can do that. Ultimate quality of the script of this one, hard to say, because it's gone through so much rewrites from, from day one. Day one, it had narration in it. Script version one, narration. Lots of it. And... Ridley Scott ultimately got rid of that. Could because he didn't like mm-hmm. it. Harrison yeah. Ford didn't like it. Harrison Ford thought, well, you know, we're having we're having Deckard tell you all this stuff he did. We're not having Deckard show you all the stuff he's doing, all the detecting, hmm. and and you know, I, I think that's a funny line considering he didn't do a whole hell of a lot of detecting in this film. It's like, wow, you did even <laughs> less in the narrated version. Wow. <laughs> but um, so I, I, you know. In this case, I look at this film and I do kind of see a Ridley Scott film, whereas in a lot of cases, I don't. I, I absolutely see it as the huge collaboration. And I know that this is the, this is one well, of the problems I, that they had on the set was that the American crew did not like the imperious way Ridley Scott was uh, to the point where he'd given an interview in a magazine in Britain. And he said, well, you know, it's a different way of working in America and the United, in, in Britain. You tell them to do something, and they say, yes, Gov, and they do it. And in the United States, everybody's got to have an opinion about it. And the crew printed up shirts that said, yes, Gov, my ass, and wore them to the set (laughs) after that. Okay. So, uh, you know, and he was discussing how when he's doing a film in Britain, man, he's there looking through the camera. He's the guy looking through the camera. He's setting the shot. Doesn't work that way in the United States. It's cinematographers. You have to collaborate with them. And 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 he was this I think may have been his first film in the United States. So he was having trouble with that. He was micromanaging these people. They weren't happy about it. But I mean he was the producers weren't happy about the results. He was shooting sometimes 11, 12, 13 times the same piece of film. Because he just didn't quite like the way it looked. I mean, over and over. He's, he's, he micromanages this film. And so, yeah, it does It does kind of feel weird. I mean, yes, I get that you have somebody give you some feedback. Just like Harrison Ford saying, hey, I'm not, you know, show, don't do. It's like, okay, yeah, I, I, I can agree with that one. The, the, it's, just, it's just odd that, the, that, like, the dove in particular, which is such a visual element, it's so stylistic, isn't sourced from the guy who's doing all the stylistic stuff of the film. I guess that's what I was going at. Um, yeah, but I but, mean, I, we we don't know where a lot of it may have 
originated from but just like with the ideas in the script i mean some of what obviously he's, he's the the script has evolved the the ridley scott has taken bits out or possibly put bits in but you still got to say a lot of what's in there is comes from what was written and therefore um you know there are there are elements of what Rutger Hauer does on screen that come from the script, that come from suggestions from the director, and elements of it that come from Rutger Hauer. So, I don't know. I, d I don't know. I, d I absolutely didn't know that that, um, that the dove had come from Rutger Hauer. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, the only the only question to me is, does does it work? You know, if it, if it was in there and it was a horrible mistake... I would be feeling a lot more pissed off about it, but probably not any more pissed off about it than if Ridley Scott had done it and it was a horrible mistake. They probably they shot it both ways. Again, according to an interview with Howard, they shot it both ways yeah. so that they could decide. Yeah. I and mean, I, I, I must say, because it's soaked. I, but well, it, it you can see it's not it's not quite naturalistic in how it it's it's almost animated, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, it's apparently it just kind of launched realized. up a little bit when he let go, and then it just landed on the ground and started walking because it was it was so soaked <laughs> down it, with water. It looks <clears> like in those sequences, it's almost like the you know the frame rate has dropped that you'll see. It, but it's again, it's a stylistic thing, and it doesn't stylistic. look doesn't look wrong. It looks like it's intentional. The I mean, the for me, it's it's on the sort of borderline there of being so kind of overtly symbolic it's verging on the cheesy and it's it's on the right side of that and you know when when i was watching it this time and i was being a little bit um almost looking looking for things to criticize i the the sequence for me that still hits a bum note is the is the whole sora sequence and in particular shooting her going through a glass window in slow motion getting up shooting again going through another glass window in slow motion that's on the wrong side <laughs> it is very weird it. Um, it is very i mean weird. but the whole the whole thing is stylized and you would not expect everything to be spot on but it sort of it sort of culminates for us uh, at the end of a sequence for me because i i find i found the whole the whole the whole idea of decade sort of camping it up pretending to be an investigator for the confidential committee on moral abuses a bit Daft. I guess it's meant to be like relief at a point. It's in the completely film it out of place in the dark. film. It just it doesn't that didn't work for me and that whole that whole sequence didn't work and it felt a bit sort of voyeuristic and tacky to be honest. So it, I, it, yeah, I, when I was when I was looking at it thinking, I do I have come to really really appreciate this film. It is it is a pleasure to watch it every time, but that's because. The set pieces that I just enjoy watching, I enjoy listening to dialogue, I enjoy listening to the music or whatever. Not all of those set pieces work, and that that in particular stands out as one that didn't. And yet it's all set up so that they can have that amazing scene where her body is lying amongst all the glass and all the neon lights are reflecting in it. That's apparently a big deal. Okay. You'll I mean, never look at that scene I... again. The next time you watch it, you'll see it. But apparently they brought all their neon lights that they had on set right around it so they could get them all reflecting in the in I can the believe it because body was like <laughs> there there are so many shots that are that are just so full of 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 those kind of perfectionist details it's it's still 
it's still a sequence that I mean, that's the that's the cherry on the cake. But if the if the cake's bad, mm. <laughs> so if it's not chocolate, then yeah, we're good to go. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's go into the big one, the controversy that existed may or may no longer exist i don't know and i don't care at this stage but the controversy that existed at the time film came out i alluded to it earlier harrison ford in one camp ridley scott in the other script is carefully uh not convincing deckard deliberately ambiguous he didn't he did not want it to be clear there is uh here's one thing that I'll say, I mean, there is, that is Deckard, or, is Deckard a replicant? That's, that is the question that is not answered in this film. However, on second viewing, I was very, very careful watching this. And the replicant eye effect, which was done deliberately, obviously, um, as I understand it, it was done kind of, I guess, maybe kind of like they would do a sort of a, pepper's ghost in reverse so they've got a they've got a, a reflective surface a transparent reflective surface between the camera and the subject at 45 degrees or yeah 45 degrees and they are shining a light into it that is being transferred straight into the eyes of the person so they can have dark lighting on them but then they've got the light coming effectively directly from the camera which gives you that I can't remember what the effect is called, but it's the effect same thing that causes red eye effect is that the back of the the back of the eye because the pupils are open uh, is reflecting the light back and it catches in the camera and they do that for every replicant in this film at some point in the course and the owl and and although I don't think they do it on the snake but that's just a um, <laughs> for a brief moment they do it to Decker. As far as I can tell, he's the only quote-unquote human at any point in this film that that happens. Oh, how it happens! In, it happens in a scene where he's with Rachel. So it's possible it's spillover from the effect being done to her because it's not as pronounced. Or considering the perfectionist that that Scott is reputed to be, it it could be it could be the tell. Um, you know, I, I can't exist in. Blade Runner land in a vacuum, the whole unicorn dream and the paper unicorn that was left by Gaff at Deckard's apartment. Um, you know, there's, there's, you could look at that two ways. One is Gaff knew Rachel was there and he let her go. He's being nice to Deckard, you know, and that's his sign. He's saying, I let you go or I let her go. Um, coincidence that he had a dream about a unicorn is it is it also a coincidence that uh, is it also a coincidence that the three things that he created in the course of the film were a swan so symbolism of like the ugly duckling the transformation from from undeveloped to developed a man and the unicorn from his dream i i don't know i mean it does actually if I were looking at that, you know, on second viewing, I don't know, I'd see it on first viewing, but on second viewing, watching through that, I would probably and did go, okay, there's there's more to it than just the unicorn at the end. They're all telling a little story. Um, Gaff knows something. But, uh, I, uh, 
this is so if if Deckard is a replicant, let's just go with go with Ridley Scott, who said subsequently, yes, I shot this as if Deckard were a replicant. So let's go with that. Uh, I shot it so it would be ambiguous to the audience, but that in my mind he was a replicant. Harrison Ford Except, playing it in yeah, my Harrison mind. Ford, I'm a human. Harrison, yes, indeed. And in the in the theatrical, okay, and and a replicant. Would. Briefly mentioned because where 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 you've got the. Ridley Scott's version of it. We we are, as you've said, we're talking about the 2007 version of the film, the 1982 theatrical release. You don't have the unicorn dream sequence, right? And so that, but it, but that was something that was uh, there in the working print that gets restored in the in the director's cut and it gets expanded in the 2007 version. It's it may not be conclusive, but it's highly highly suggestive to me. It it. I, I kind of find it pretty persuasive. And so, yeah, I would, I, yes. I, I, so, think, I think more Ridley Scott is working on that, the more he's moving it around towards his perspective. But I like, I like the being space for ambiguity. Well, and I think, you know, it's, I think it's more important that it is ambiguous. I think that if they came out yes. and said he was a replicant, then that's a problem. Because the, the most important thing about this whole story the most important point is that you can't tell yes absolutely a difference that a difference that is no difference is no difference and if they are creating humans then they are humans and you know that that comes with all of the the moral uh baggage or uh requirements that that it would have and i mean there's other tells his obsession with photographs I mean, he's got the most ridiculous collection of photographs on his piano. I mean, who is going to believe that anybody has a group of pictures? I mean, that looks like the photo album that I have at the bottom of my drawer with all the ancestors that we literally don't know who they are. <laughs> right? <laughs> all the black and white 1880s photos and stuff. You're just looking at that going. But, you know, it parallels... It parallels Leon and his photographs, right? Mm. That they're, and, and Rachel, I've got my photograph here. My photograph is my memory. It proves that my memory is real. Mm. And Leon's photographs are real. They're pictures he took or, or they took of him and others, etc. They're pretty lousy photographs, I got to say. But um, he's, he's got some questionable photographic sense there. But... You know, it, it's so the fact that Deckard has a piano full of pictures is another clue along that line. And I and I go on that. But here's my question. If replicants are slaves, is Deckard a slave? Because he seems to come into this film with free will. I'm a retired replicant uh, Blade Runner. And then they arrest him and they take him to headquarters and they threaten him with, hey, if you're not a cop, you're the little people, which is basically will make your life a living hell. But that, so but, what is the point of having a Blade Runner replicant who is already like I'm retired or, 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 or here's another question for you. Did they create him 10 minutes before this film start started and pumped the memories of dead Deckard in him? <laughs> oh, you mean there was a real Deckard? There's a real Rachel. It's Tyrell's well, niece. It, There's no yeah, indication it, that the memories they can put Rachel. in somebody are fake ones. Tyrell's no, niece but, is not dead. Right. Well, right. Well, why well, would they need we why would they need a replicant Deckard if they have 
the real Deckard. I don't know. I'm just saying. I, no, but like, I think I, we, I mean the the question of the question of when he was created is a is a perfectly valid one, and and so it could it could I you make a good point in that it could be literally ten minutes before the film starts. But I I think I think the the issue about I I I kind of don't believe it was ten minutes before the film starts. I don't know how long it was. I don't know that he has the four-year limit on his lifespan, if indeed he is a replicant. But the the point about the free will thing I was saying earlier is that it, that is an illusion. The, what, what happens when they call him in is he starts doing their bidding, which is what they would want from a replicant. So that in itself is perfectly logical for a replicant. What happens during the film is that he starts to some degree questioning it, even though by the end of the film he has actually done what they want him to do. He has, well, he sort of minus required one. the four replicants. Well, he's minus two, in fact. He he kills well, uh, yeah. Zora and Priest, right. but Leon is killed by Rachel, and Roy just... Yeah, Roy just yeah. Uh, retires himself. He just, yes, or he just he just retires naturally. Or unnaturally, mm. but you know. So, so yeah. I mean, i I think that is I think that is the point. I think that is the point. As you say, you you that 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 whole ambiguity underlines the lack of difference between replicants. If replicants are being subservient, in, in you know, however however they get to that position that they do what they're supposed to do how does that cast on that ghastly ghastly sex scene with deckard and rachel (laughs) because he's tell me you want me i want you it's like like (laughs) oh yeah she's she's programmed to do to do what she's told to do there's the power differential between human and non-human right there she should file a complaint. I, I I don't like that scene for a variety of reasons. Um, it's it maybe it's her acting is so bad, and his isn't great. I mean Harrison Ford, you gotta love Harrison Ford. He's been in some great films, but some he's not films. gonna be. He's, he's yes, but he's not gonna be doing Hamlet anytime soon. He is he is pretty wooden. If you get him out, you know he's kind of. He's kind of like Roger Moore. He's got a type, and as long as you make the film around that, then 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 he can be really likable. <laughs> and when you go against that type, the limitations of his abilities begin to show up. And this is probably I th- I, I, probably I, I the have, best I, analogy I, I can see. No, well, I I was just saying I can't really disagree with. The way you characterize, I like. I, I mean, he has been in some very good films. Frantic, for example, is I think perfectly suited to him, and therefore, and but he is, you know, he is very good in it. It's just maybe he can't necessarily do some other types of performances. I guess, in a way, it made me think that the criticism of Ryan Gosling was a bit strange in terms of casting him in Blade Runner 2049 because it's kind of true to the 
to the original. He also can't act. Have that kind of, oh. you have, well, it's no. I, again, you know, I'm being careful how we describe it, but that he is particularly suited to to a certain kind of performance. He can give. He can act very well in some things, but he doesn't necessarily have the versatility of some other actors who, you know, you would be able to say, well, I, I, this, if we could get so-and-so in this because of his versatility, he would be great, not just because he's particularly well-suited to this part. And I kind of think this part, it sort of suits Harrison Ford, but I don't know if someone else couldn't have been better. There's two areas where he f- falls down for me on this. One is that scene. He just... It's not that there just is no chemistry, no nothing going on in that scene. And the other is whenever he gets that, he's got a his idea of I'm feeling I'm feeling something is blinking a bunch. And so like when he's feeling I've killed a replicant and I need to go get a drink. It's kind of it's kind of goldfish blinking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he's doing the same thing when Roy is sitting there and, and giving his little tears in rain speech. He's just kind of like, blink, blink. And maybe he's just trying to keep the rain out of his eyes. I don't know. But it it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. I just, I, I'm not seeing that face and going, that's the emotion that I'm ex- thinking he's experiencing the emotion that he should be experiencing which i'm not even sure what that is but it it isn't that one and so those are the two areas where uh you know he was better as the doofus in the in the stripper's room than than he is in expressing Mm -hmm. i need a drink i'm really feeling morally ambiguous about what i've just done so i was fascinated uh, to discover that um when when um, when this was being written, it was written with Robert Mitchum in mind. Oh yeah, as Deckard. I I, I hadn't known that, um, but it and it it kind of makes sense because as we've talked about, there is this real sort of noir sense to the film. And um, I guess it had been I guess it'd be in the seventies. Mitchum did a a uh, couple of couple of Chandler adaptations mm-hmm. uh, a, a new big sleep and and uh, one of the i don't think they were terribly good actually and i'm not sure it would have been great with mitchum in the role um i i think that i think that ridley scott wanted dustin hoffman yes that was one of the people they were trying to he tried to get in yes i cannot imagine that. he was bef- i can't imagine it either i can't imagine it either. so but, maybe you know harrison ford is is the best cast he certainly think. was better bankable I think for that type of role, uh, oh, or what? Yeah, pe- sure. You know, people were thinking you're going to go see a Han Solo film. I, I, I genuinely think that's probably may have been some of the problem. They were expecting yeah. him to be Han Solo, and what they got was cut rate Raymond Chandler, uh, or or no, cut rate Robert Mitchum. <laughs> Anyhow, um, let me go. This is this is a marathon, but that's hardly a surprise. Um, for this particular film. I get a couple of miscellaneous points here. Um, and I think it's fair to mention this in this part because if you are paying very close attention to the ads at the beginning on one of the... It's, it's more pronounced elsewhere in, in perhaps one of the other cuts. But in, if you're paying very close attention to the ads at the beginning, if you sign up to go off-world, you're going to get some... You're going to 
get yourself your own replicant to see to all your needs. That's, that's the marketing pitch that they're giving when they push in on him waiting for his ramen uh, or sushi shop uh, at the beginning. So, so, so there's your answer. If that, if that's on the adverts, it's, it, that's carried over from do androids dream of electric sheep? That's why they're they're like humans. Um, but you know, we have Jeff Sebastian kind of mentioned this. He can't go because he's got Methuselah symptom. They asked, why didn't you go off world? Because I can't. Which that to me gives me the impression that all the people left on the planet are all the people who can't go for whatever reason. Yeah. Nobody looks like they're happy. It's miserable place. <laughs> and again, <laughs> why is not the Tyrell Corporation going somewhere else where they can? But but it's the same. Um, the name Blade Runner is ludicrous. Uh, it has no basis yeah. in the book. It has it has no, no. logical basis. Sounds cool though. That is why they picked it. It's from another book, and a Blade Runner in that other book was like a medical intern that would run contraband medical supplies between hospitals in a dystopian future where medicine's been, mm. I don't know whether I it's been know. highly what socialized or what book was it? Blade Runner. <laughs> oh, that's the that's name the of the actual, book. I think it's the actual, I think it's the actual book. We, I could find so out. So they ripped off a but title. Yes. Of, wow. And it says no, in the I end credits, they, they give thanks to the, they give thanks to the guy to think they just thought the name was cool. This is cool, which, you know, is is why this it podcast is. is called Fusion Patrol. So, uh, you know, it's no, it's no meaning. <laughs> it's just, hey, that sounds cool. Uh, and which, you know, and we use kind of the Blade Runner font. So, huh, you know, serendipity there, synchronicity. Um, at the beginning of the film, there is a serious exposition dump in Bryant's office and in Tyrell's office to Deckard, yeah. a trained replicant hunter. Does he not yeah. know all this stuff? I mean, I know it's for the I, audience, but but really, they, it was awkwardly done. Well, uh, yeah. Well, on rewatching this time, I was looking at it, going, "Yeah, that is that is kind of like some some of it." You can think, "Well, it's updating about what these particular models are like," and he might not, you know, he might not have the latest. But it, but it's way more information than you think he would need to know. Yes, uh, and that he wouldn't already know most of it. Um, dystopian future is filled with immigrants. Dystopian present. It's now. It's now. Yeah, dystopian. Well, it was. It was. It 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 was a dystopian future in 1982, but right here we are in November 2019. Their projection of the future is that it would be filled with foreigners. Is I I I find that xenophobic. I don't know. Was it? (laughs) You're looking forward, and it's like, well, you know, this is a terrible place. And look, everyone speaking other languages, the Spanish and the, Chinese, and the Japanese, mostly the Japanese, which is funny because remember when the Japanese were winning? I, I don't know if this happened. You, because, because, I mean, this again comes back to the fact I'm not familiar with Los Angeles. Are you saying it was and is less multi-ethnic than we see in this film? It is, I would say, yes, I would say it's less multi-ethnic a bit. Um, California is where the immigrants go so california does you know do all their government publications in i don't know 14 16 languages uh uh california if you can tell me the exact number but they they do that because they do have a significant number of immigrants they do tend to cluster in areas still 
really that looks nothing like that's that's that thing looks like new york city but it's filled you know there's you have to go into like certain parts of los angeles before you're going to find all the the kanji the katakana in los angeles everywhere i go it's chinese signs but um yeah that that is not an accurate portrayal of what it looks like walking around the streets of and, and another of los angeles and another thing is <clears throat> in 1980s i don't know if this was that way in the uk but in the United States, there was a perception that Japan's economy was the one that was going to take over the world. And so there was a big wave of people like taking, they wanted their kids in school to take Japanese as a second language. Um, and, and I know where else, elsewhere in the world, they make their kids take English as a second language, or they have historically for many years. Um, that may be shifting, but in the United States, we don't, in the United States, we don't do that. You know they're 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 pretty darn insular about you know you teach kid English, but starting about the 1980s, they began to have a lot of parents who had a desire to get their kids to learn Japanese so that they would have an advantage in business dealings with the Japanese who are going to be running the economy of the world. Which of course it crashed and failed, and now it's Chinese and they're doing exactly the same thing with it. But I just thought it was funny that this slice of time, everything you see that's Asian looking is Japanese. For the most part, I can I can tell you that. From looking at it the the, the difference is uh you know it's it's all japanese and if they were making that film today it would be chinese <laughs> i mean it would, mm, that would yeah. be exactly the 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 difference I, I think that's an interesting little piece of the snapshot um i'm gonna ask how good deckard's gun is that he can just fire it into a crowd after zara <laughs> and not uh, and not be splattering people or, or do they not matter um he says he doesn't want to kill people so it's okay but um there is the sequence where he does the photograph and puts it in the machine and he says, you know, do this, pan that thing. Is that the origin of that awful, awful trope from films Probably. and TV? Probably, yeah. Ah, uh, but it, but it is Scott's got a lot to answer for. No, but it's justifiable here because it is based on a live scan of the photograph, isn't it? So the, the issue I have with it in... in most applications is where they've already got a pre-digitized image on screen and they zoom in onto a particular bit of it and go enhance and suddenly all this resolution appears but if you if you're if you're actually live scanning the photograph so presumably in there there is some sort of mechanism where something can actually pan around on the photograph pan around and, columns on the photograph at well, one point it very much appears like it is taking something that is hidden behind a column and then revealing her oh, where she that. was i on the second i thought, view I, thought through, I, I was thought watching that very closely and i i'm like oh that looks very much like they're trying to do a three-dimensional well that's just <sighs> daft but i've not seen that in anything else that's not that hasn't become a trope that you can do 3d stuff in photos the thing that's no that i think you see everywhere is that is that you can is that you can zoom in and zoom in and get all this extra resolution. But what he's... Or say enhance and have it fix Yeah, it. but what he's essentially doing that is just... A, it's it's basically a voice-controlled microscope of some kind. It's, it's, it's controlling a, a, a magnifier that gives you a version of the photograph that's on a much larger screen, a screen that is much larger than the, the image itself. And uh, uh, it's it's 
mechanistically controlling the actual magnifier that is moving over the surface of the photograph. So it's not creating new resolution, it's actually zooming in on the photograph itself where the resolution already exists. So I was kind of fine with that. I'm not sure that terribly realistic. You'd have a cathode ray tube in it. And, <laughs> but that's and the issue. printout was lower resolution than what was on the screen. Yeah. Yes. It's a terrible and photograph. All, and and the, the fact that all the photographs are actually printed photographs rather than photographs yeah. that are digitally created using mobile phones. But then, you know. Hey, in November, they should be able to be using an iPhone 11 Pro. Should be some pretty good pictures. <laughs> yeah, because it's got three cameras in it. Yeah. The and uh, <laughs> that's how you can see around a corner. <laughs> yeah, that must be it. Um. Now, if Apple, had, if Apple had done that, it would have been interesting. Um, yeah, no, I no, I don't think I do. I mean, I I just I the whole thing is just very evocative, um, and there are there are certain certain lines in it that just particularly draw out the 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 kind of ideas in these themes when Rachel is sitting down and playing the piano and say she that she dreamt music and she I didn't know if I could play because she didn't know whether to trust her memories and that is a wonderful idea that you know it, it because it's all about whether your skills which can't just be implanted actually match up to the the memories which can um yeah I yeah I really like it all right um in that case Simon thank you for joining me at this look at Blade Runner the final cut it's a pleasure and listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.